0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net.
1: Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Doing all right? Great. Hey, my name is Paul, one of the pastors here at Heritage, and man, we're really glad that you're worshiping with us today. Uh, Thankful for the folks that we have out in the overflow. Uh, Thankful that there are folks who have the opportunity to, to tune in online uh, we're glad that you're here today, man. That survey that, that Aaron shared that has been, um, it is going to be a, a powerful and very important tool for us individually, as a family, and then as a church family. I I can't I can't reaffirm what he encouraged enough. It's going to help. You, and it's going to help your family, and it's going to help us as a church continue to grow in Christ's likeness gives us a snapshot of where we are, where God is at work in our lives, and how, we, how He might be applying that sanctifying chisel into our lives, shaping and forming us more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus. I would encourage for those of you that are married or have a significant other, or if you are single and you have a roommate who knows you well, or a sibling... You might think about doing uh, taking the survey with them by your side also, because sometimes people have a more accurate perception of your foibles than you do. Like, oh, you give yourself a five in that? I give you a two. Oh, okay, I guess I'll give myself a three then. But sincerely, uh, it, it's a it really and, and like Aaron said, it's going to give us a. a an uh, understanding of, uh, like, when we think about, okay, how is God calling us to, to, to shepherd our church to, 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 when it comes to what, what we teach on Sunday, what happens in women's and men's ministries in small group? It gives us an idea of what God is doing in our church corporately, so how we can move forward as a church, but then also it gives you feedback personally that you can, you can continue to put yourself in a position where God can shape and mold you and form you more into the image of his son. So I just reaffirm everything. That that Aaron said, please take advantage of that tool. We've worked really, really hard on that for our congregation. One of the things that that con- that tool does is it gives us these eight markers of a disciple, and one of those markers is authentic relationship marked by love. We believe that a disciple in Jesus has authentic relationships in their lives. Uh, that are marked by love. I'm looking out at Fred here because we had a big conversation this week about what that looks like in the life of a disciple. And one of the, worry, one of the areas where our, where our discipleship is lived out with authentic relationships marked by love is in our family. And so we have this, we're going to take a three-week break coming up in February uh, on our Mark series kind of in the Valentine season. We're doing a, ser- a sermon series. We're simply calling it Love, Marriage, and Family. And we're just going to take three weeks to take a look at what do authentic relationships marked by love look like in in just love within human relationship. For those of us that desire to be married, are engaged to be married, or want to be married, or even think about marriage, what what does that look like? What does authentic relationship marked by love look like within the confines of Christian marriage? And then we're going to look at family. All of us are part of a family. What does authentic relationship marked by love look like? What is God's vision and idea for the family? So we're just going to take a three-week, kind of a semi, uh, a a small mini-sermon series, this this Valentine's, to look at those three things. And for us, it's a way for us to kind of lean into that specific area of discipleship. So mark that on your calendars, February 13th through the 27th. Excited about that series. And then uh, beginning in March, we'll hop back in, in the Gospel of Mark, and we will finish Mark uh, by, the, by, the, by the time we get to summer. We'll be done with the Gospel of Mark. Uh, hey, today we're going to be back in, in Mark, chapter 7. I encourage you to open your Bibles today to Mark 7. Uh, we're going we're gonna to read from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. Um, the, the sermon series that we're in, uh, have been in since September, is called uh, Son of God's Suffering Servant. We're just journeying through Mark's Gospel. And as we look at the first half of this gospel up to kind of the mid part of chapter 8, the question that Mark is is basically answering in a number of different ways is, who is Jesus? And so today we get another depiction of who is Jesus. We see two scenes, two depictions, two moments in the life and ministry of Jesus where he engages a, a Syrophoenician woman and a man who struggles with deafness and a speech impediment. Let's pick up in verse 24. We'll read it in its entirety, and then we'll get into the sermon and from there he Jesus rose and went away to the region of Tyre in Sidon and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know yet he could not be hidden but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet now the woman was a Gentile a phoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Verse 31, and he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay hands on him. And after taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in the man's ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven and sighed and said, "Ephetha that is, be open." And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged him to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Amen. If you remember last week, we got into chapter 7. And as we got into chapter 7, there was this encounter, this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. If you remember, the Pharisees were very concerned about the ceremonial washing of hands that the disciples of Jesus were not engaging in. And so they began this discussion about what leads to true defilement. And Jesus talked about defilement of the heart. And he confronts these Pharisees in the earlier part of our chapter on their rotten hearts that are covered up by a religious externalism. And then immediately after he exposes them, he, he, and he exposes their obsession with religious externalism while never paying attention to their heart, what he does immediately after confronting these religious men is he goes into a region that would have been seen and, and understood as being entirely unclean. He goes directly into a Gentile community and the Pharisees would have pulled their hair out. They couldn't have believed the scandal of Jesus going into this area where there are unclean Gentile people. And then on top of that, he engages with an unclean Syrophoenician woman. He's pushing back against this religionist's way of thinking about religious externalism. And as we see Jesus both here in, in the, the Syrophoenician woman and also when he goes in the second part of our text to the Decapolis, that was also a Gentile region. He's, this section of scripture shows Jesus intentionally and purposefully engaging with Gentiles, non-Jews. And then we're reminded, when we, when we see the, the ministry of Jesus stretching outside of ethnic Israel, we're reminded what God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he made the, the Abrahamic promise. Genesis 12, verse 3, Jesus said, or God said to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. All the families, not just the Jews. And now as we see Jesus spilling out of the boundaries of Galilee, away from exclusively Jewish communities, uh, sharing a hope, and his message with Gentiles, we're reminded that this message is a message for all people. What we would say in sort of theological circles is this is a picture of Gentile inclusion, the scandal of the gospel to the Jewish audience. And as, as we think about who did Mark write the gospel to, well, we believe that Mark wrote the gospel to, to Gentile Christians who were living in Rome. So to these non-Jewish Christians who were reading this text for the very first time 2,000 years ago, how encouraging to see Jesus' heart broken for those who are Gentile, who aren't a part of the Jewish community. And so we have this beautiful depiction. And as we look at both scenarios, we see the ministry of Jesus being both global for all people, but also deeply and intimately personal. It's global. It's a a movement for all people. All the families of the earth are blessed by Jesus. And yet he enters into the life and into the space and into the pain and into the story of these people in such beautiful and intimate ways. And if I had to summarize just on a very observational human level, what are we seeing here with Jesus? Here's what I see. We see Jesus personally meeting people in their pain where he provides healing and deliverance. I'm going to say that a dozen times today. We see Jesus personally meeting people in their pain, and he provides healing and deliverance. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that you would meet us today in this place, God, as we read your word, as we sit under the authority of your word, as we, as we look back through, through you know, human history and theological history and, and, and just this amazing picture of Jesus. God, entering into people's stories, into their their, their pain and their afflictions and, and healing them and delivering them. God, as we, as we look at these, these depictions in the gospel of Mark, in your living word, God, would you allow us to then look at our world and look at our lives and understand how it may be that you meet us personally and meet the men and women in our community personally and how it is today, even today, God, through your son Jesus, you bring healing and deliverance. So God, open our ears to hear. Soften our hearts to understand, and God, give us obedience to walk out of this place in obedient response to the things you reveal here today. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this month, I traveled to Wisconsin to officiate the funeral of my nephew. Some of you know this. I've talked to some of you about this. My nephew Anthony was 31 years old, and after battling addiction his whole entire adult life, he he died of an accidental fentanyl overdose a few days after Christmas. He was 31. It was tragic. And Anthony's death was tragic enough, and yet at his funeral, my heart ached the most for his son, my great-nephew Caleb, who's 10 years old. As I, as I stood in the pulpit at my nephew's funeral, I kept looking down at my great-nephew Caleb, who's 10, who is, is just trying to comprehend the magnitude of death and the finality of death as a 10-year-old. It was tragic. Caleb's a little boy who is very, I mean, all of our family is near and dear to us, but to my immediate family, my wife and my daughters and my son, he, he is very, very special to our family for a whole host of reasons. As I think about Caleb, I think about what that little boy has had to endure over the 10 years of his life. He has experienced just unspeakable loss, I mean, just mind-blowingly unspeakable loss. The week that he was born, his dad's dad, so his grandfather, died of an overdose, so now this little boys, dad and his grandfather, have both died of an overdose. When he was two years old, his aunt on his mom's side, she was 17, his aunt Cameron died of suicide. And then when he was five years old, both of his parents were arrested for uh, dealing heroin, and also they got arrested for child neglect, because they were dragging their little five-year-old son into the, the, the lifestyle of drug addicts and drug dealers. And then he went and he lived for about a year in different homes and in rehab centers bouncing around. One of the homes he lived in was ours, but bounced around from home and rehab center following his mother around. And then uh, the, the week he finally got back into a stabilized life, his uncle dies. He was 22 years old, his uncle. He had a neurological muscular disorder, and he died sort of unexpectedly. And then two years later, his paternal or his maternal grandfather, so his mom's dad, committed suicide on his eighth birthday, right around his eighth birthday. And then this year, uh, on a time when most 10-year-olds are just worried about Santa Claus and what's happening for Christmas, his dad dies of an overdose. Can you imagine a 10-year-old boy? It is, it is just so stinking heartbreaking. You know, as I'm sitting up there in this funeral, I'm thinking, how do I? I mean, I met with my nephew, try to talk to my nephew, try to comfort him, share truth. Uh, and I'm doing this funeral, and there's people in the room, you know, all the people that knew and loved Anthony, and I'm sad for them. I really am. But I, I, my, my vision and my heart was just fixed on on Caleb. I just saw him sitting there, his his feet dangling off the chair, his feet not even touching the ground, his hands neatly folded on his lap trying to choke back tears. And when I hang out with Caleb, it's this weird combination of, of, of youthful innocence and just like hard-hearted. Uh, hardened. He's just a hardened boy from the things he's had to see and, and experience in his life. And on one hand, he talks about Bigfoot and aliens, and he plays with his little brother, and he's a little 10 year old. On the other hand, he talks to you as if he's 40 years old about the losses he's experienced in his life. And if I'm honest, when I stood up there to do his funeral, I just felt so impotent, I just felt so gutted. I, I just felt so useless. I felt weak, I felt powerless. I had nothing of significance in and of myself to offer and I'm trying to lace together something that would offer hope to this little boy and as I stood up there, weak and pathetic, I, I remembered that, um, that I have faith in a God who personally meets us in our pain, and he provides deliverance and healing. And so as I stood up there feeling weak and pathetic, I was reminded that the one I represent is anything but. And so in that moment, on that day, in every day since, I find myself begging God on behalf of my great nephew, personally asking God to encounter that little boy, open his eyes, remind him of how deeply loved he is, and to to, to bring healing into his life and hope and deliverance. Jesus personally meets people in their pain, and he brings healing and deliverance. So that's how my prayers are directed. If you think of praying for Caleb Church, I would invite you to do so. This is where our faith goes from being a cerebral thing to a personal thing. And I've said this a hundred times. I think God in his grace at times in our life, he brings us to our knees so that we recognize our need for him. Because sometimes if it's just a cerebral thing, we don't really know what it means to have a personal encounter with Jesus. And so sometimes God in his grace, he brings us to our knees that it can take that 18-inch journey from our head to our heart and we can encounter him. And one of the greatest blessings in my life is my job. It's like I jokingly, sometimes people ask me what I do for a living and I I say I work one day a week, which is a joke. And then I also say I, I have coffee with people and I get to hear amazing stories. And it's such an awesome blessing to, to be a Christian, number one, and be in a family with people who come from different biological and ethnic and, and cultural and social backgrounds, and we can be one family. That's incredible, the, the, the body of Christ. But just the interpersonal nature of sitting down over a cup of coffee and hearing stories. As I'm just looking out, I'm just, I'm just I'm remembering some of the stories some of you have told me about your life and your journey with Jesus. And it's, it's incredible. I get to hear stories every week about how Jesus still opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. How Jesus makes himself known to people who are dead in their sins and trespasses, but he makes them alive in Christ. I get to hear those stories, and I'm reminded that our God is active, and he still encounters people on a personal level. I get to hear stories about how Jesus meets people in their pain, and though he doesn't remove the pain or fix the problem, he brings comfort in the midst of pain and deep transformation of the soul. As I talk to people and hear stories, I'm reminded of how Jesus still releases people from bondage, addicts being delivered, and on the journey of recovery. God delivers people. As I I meet and hear stories, I'm reminded of how Jesus meets people in their affliction, and our God still heals. He heals physically, he heals emotionally, he heals spiritually. Jesus personally meets people in their pain, and he brings healing and deliverance. And our text gives us two pictures of that today. We have, on one hand, this personal encounter with the woman, the Syrophoenician Gentile woman, On the other hand, we have this this depiction of Jesus encountering this deaf man who very likely was also a Gentile. And so we have a Gentile woman from Tyre and Sidon, and we have likely a Gentile man from the region of the Decapolis. Two encounters with the living God. And though each encounter is unique and different and will highlight the differences, there's some things that those encounters have in common. And as I look at the encounter with Jesus with the Gentile woman and Jesus with the deaf man, we also see the way in which Jesus continues to encounter people today. And here's, here's all three points of my sermon up front. We're going to see that Jesus encounters the marginalized, and as he does this, he pays attention to them. We see that he, he personally engages them, and he provides deliverance. Jesus still does this today. He pays attention to us. He personally engages with us. And he provides deliverance in our lives. And, our, and our, our text begins with Jesus leaving the region of Galilee. He goes up into Tyre and Sidon, which was kind of north and west of Galilee. It, the, the only other time we've heard the words Tyre and Sidon was in, in Mark chapter 3, when the ministry, the kind of the healing and, and the... the, the The deliverance ministry and the teaching ministry of Jesus was at this utmost fame in Capernaum. It said that people from all over the region were coming to hear Jesus and be a part of this ministry of his early on. And one of the regions where people were coming to hear Jesus was Tyre and Sidon. So it's very likely that people went back to Capernaum and and the fame of Jesus had preceded him up into this region. And so Jesus goes into this region... And as he's up there, it, it, the text tells us that he just kind of, he, he entered a house and he did not want to, anyone to know, and so maybe he was tired, maybe Jesus needed a little bit of rest, maybe he was trying to get away from the crowds of Galilee, but he went up there, and we know why he went up there, because he had a very important and ordained encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. And as, as she enters into the story of Jesus, we're going to unpack the, the things that Jesus said, the interaction that they had, And the way it is that God just kind of just lovingly revealed himself to her. And then after that, he goes down to this region called the Decapolis. This is like this region of ten cities on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a a Gentile, Greekish area, uh, ethnically mixed. It was also an area that would have been considered unclean. And there Jesus encounters this man with an unclean spirit. And, And we're reminded again that the gospel knows no ethnic limitation. And when you look at both encounters, we see that Jesus personally meets people in their pain and he brings healing and deliverance. The first thing we see is that he pays attention. I'd encourage you to write that down. Jesus encounters the marginalized and he pays attention. So let's look at how does he pay attention to this, this, this Gentile woman, this Syrophoenician woman? She, she comes to Him, she's got a daughter that's afflicted, and so with the, the mama bear heart wanting her daughter to be de- relieved and delivered for some reason, she knows that Jesus is the answer, and so she pushes through, she comes to Him, she falls down at His feet, and Jesus begins to speak to her. He doesn't just walk past her, He speaks to her. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 15 records this exact situation, but it kind of just a different angle. In Matthew 15, verses 22 through 24, Matthew tells us that, Behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out, and she was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. His disciples came and begged Jesus, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And Jesus could have just sent her away, and that could have been the end of the conversation. But verse 24 of Matthew's account tells us that Jesus answered her. Verse 27 of our account tells us that Jesus said to her, he paid attention to this woman. It's interesting to me that in Matthew, this woman is described as being a Canaanite to be a Syrophoenician. So there was this old civilization called the Phoenicians, and then when the Roman Empire came in, that region became known as Syria, so as a Syria-Phoenician, Syrophoenician, it was kind of an it was a, it was a, both a geographical title, but also there could be some ethnic and some cultural uh, underpinnings to the title Syrophoenician. This woman likely spoke Greek, she was not a Jew on, on any measure. And so, and so Jesus, uh, so in Mark's go- or Matthew's gospel, they even call her a Canaanite, which is interesting because if you know your Bible, you know the, the hostility that existed between Jews and Canaanites. One commentator said that this woman was a descendant of an ancient race that Israel had attempted to exterminate. She was not an ideal person. She was unclean in every way, a very unlikely woman to encounter Jesus. But as she entered the presence of Jesus and his disciples, she, she was courageous. And she fought through all those social and political and religious barriers. She fought through all of that. She was about as marginalized and about as much of an outsider as she could have possibly been when she entered into the company of Jesus and his disciples. But she entered. Kathy Johnson, our Women's Ministries Director, she had texted this week kind of her observations on this passage, and I thought her observations were on point. I'm going to share what Kathy wrote in in a message to me this week. She said the fact that the woman who approached Jesus was apparently unaccompanied by her husband or a male relative and that she initiates conversation with a man she doesn't know totally goes against all the cultural and religious norms at that time. Not to mention the fact that she has a demon-possessed daughter on top of that. She was absolutely an outsider. And Jesus pretty much confirms that in his seemingly harsh immediate response to her pleas. And yet after her response, Jesus beautifully demonstrates the Father's heart, and that his healing power is not confined by ethnic, political, or social boundaries, and that he truly sees the heart of those who seek him. What a pleasure to have Kathy on our staff with insights like that. As I see the care of Jesus for this woman, as I see this woman entering into his presence without a covering, I see Jesus even though she's violating all sorts of cultural customs, Jesus meets her in the midst of her pain. He sees her broken heart. He sees the the, the torment of a mother for her daughter that causes her to have such ferocity in coming after him. And as I see the, the compassion and the love that Jesus shows for this woman, I'm reminded of the women who are present in this room today who might be single moms, who might feel a little uncovered at times. Or maybe there's some women in this room where you don't have a, Maybe you're not single, but you don't, you feel alone spiritually in your home. And you feel like you're going it alone. I'm reminded that Jesus meets you and he sees you. You might feel alone in the task of raising your kids and discipling your kids, but you're not. He sees you and he pays attention. At the conclusion of his interaction with this woman, the Gospel of Matthew quotes Jesus as saying something incredible of this lady. In Matthew, uh, verse twenty-eight of, of, of chapter fifteen, Jesus answers this woman. He says, "Oh woman, great is your faith. What a compliment he says to the, to, a, to a a Gentile woman." I and mean, she's not supposed to be someone who gets it somehow some way she gets it somehow some way she knows that in all of the world as she's thinking of her afflicted demon possessed daughter uh, all the other traditions and the religious customs have gone by the wayside for this woman and she knows somehow that Jesus this visiting itinerant miracle worker from Galilee is the answer And maybe she heard testimony of people who'd seen him in Capernaum. Maybe she had gone to Capernaum herself and seen the ministry of Jesus. But for whatever reason, she knows that he's the answer and she pushes through to him. And this reveals an incredible theme in Mark's gospel. Last spring, as we were kind of getting ready to preach this book, uh, the preaching team and and those of us that are kind of on the sermon development team, we read through this, this gospel in one sitting. And one of the themes that came up, which was remarkable, was that over and over and over again in Mark's gospel, the people that should get it, Pharisees, disciples, the religious folks, they never get it. Not to the, I mean, You go through the entire book of Mark and they never get it. But the people that should never get it do. And so this Syrophoenician woman, she somehow understands who Jesus is. And when we hear the interaction she has, it's incredible. And it's interesting, if you go to the very end of Mark's gospel, chapter 15, sort of the climactic moment in the whole gospel, like the moment, like the crescendo of the story is the death of Jesus... And this Roman guard who oversaw the execution of Jesus, the centurion, he's watching all this unfold, and he says, truly, this man was the Son of God. The only person to confess Christ as Lord is a Roman centurion, the occupying force who oversaw his execution. It's incredible. And somehow this woman is another one of those miraculous outsiders who understands who Jesus really is. And in this scene, she's got this praiseworthy faith. Jesus says, oh, woman, great is your faith. What is it about her faith that's so praiseworthy? What is it about this woman's faith that causes Jesus to say, incredible? Other commentators have pointed this out. We we chatted about this on Tuesday. We all kind of saw these, these themes in her life, but her faith was a humble, persistent faith. We see her falling on her knees before Jesus as a sign of humility. When Jesus calls her a dog, she doesn't refute that she's a dog. She's humble before Jesus. Doesn't demand her way, doesn't pound her chest. In humility, she comes before him. She puts herself under him. And she's persistent. The disciples say, send her away. She doesn't go away. Jesus kind of says, you're a dog. She doesn't go away. She stays persistently fighting on behalf of her daughter. She's got this humble, persistent faith. And somehow in all of this, she trusted that Jesus was enough. So she had a humble, persistent, trusting faith, believing that the crumb from the table of Jesus was more than enough. She knew that he was the answer. One one author writes, her story, this woman's story, hers is a story of faith that delighted Jesus. As such, it can be of great help for any person who hasn't yet come to faith in Christ. And it can be of equal great value to, to the believer who is struggling with his or her faith in difficult circumstances. So the first thing we see with this woman is that Jesus pays attention to her affliction. What about the man? So we've looked at the woman. What about the man? How does Jesus pay attention to this afflicted man in the next section? It's very interesting to me that we see when Jesus arrives in the Decapolis, we read uh, in verse 32 that they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And if you're, if you're an underliner or a or underline or circle the phrase, they brought to him. Because think of, I don't know if you remember this or not, if you go back to math, or Mark chapter 5, the only other time you've heard the word de- Decapolis or Decapolis in Mark's gospel is in chapter 5. Now, do you remember what happened there? Jesus goes across the Sea of Galilee and he steps off the boats in in the region of the Decapolis and he's met immediately by a demon-possessed man who has thousands of demons in him, if you remember this. And he's screeching and screaming and opposing the presence of Jesus. Well, Jesus casts the demons out into some pigs on a hill. The pigs run down the hill into the Sea of Galilee and they die and the man is delivered. The herdsmen from the Decapolis, from the region, they come and they say, get out of here. We don't want you here, leave. And so the last time Jesus was in Decapolis, they told him to run away, get out of here. But this time when he comes, they run to him and ask for help. They ask for healing. They beg him to deliver this afflicted man. What changed between that first encounter in Mark 5 and the second encounter in Mark 7? Well, I think it's speculation, but if you go back to Mark chapter 5, if you remember the man who had all the demons, who was delivered and healed by Jesus, do you remember as Jesus is getting ready to embark across the Sea of Galilee, in Mark 5, 19, he, or in 5.18, he begs Jesus, Hey, can I go with you? I want to be with you, Jesus. You, you healed me, you delivered me. I want to go wherever you're going. Do you remember what Jesus says to the man? Mark 5.19? He did not permit the man to go with him. Instead, he said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Verse 20: And he went away. This man, this delivered, healed man, went away, and he began to proclaim in the decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. text doesn't tell us this, but as I read this text, i got to wonder, could it be that the testimonial ministry of this delivered man, sharing testimony of the delivering, healing power of Jesus, could it be that this man's presence in these cities, these ten cities, softened the heart of people so that when Jesus showed up a second time, they ran to him and said, I want to see this Jesus who delivered you? Could it be? We don't know. I like to speculate. And then we see Jesus taking the man aside. Doesn't keep the guy, this deaf, mute man. He doesn't keep him as a spectacle around the crowds. Jesus takes him aside. I just imagine their eyes locked. Here's a man who was a forgettable, forgotten, afflicted, scourge of society type. But Jesus pulls him aside and pays attention to the man. Looks him in the eyes and has an encounter with him. It's incredible. How is it that Jesus might pay attention to you and me today? How is it that Jesus might be paying attention even to you today right now in this moment? This week, I found myself in the, the COVID unit at Providence. It's my first time having entered into a COVID unit at a hospital since the pandemic began. And I found myself sitting with a woman, and an older woman who was dying. And she was fighting for every breath. It was tortured to sit with her, to watch her fight for every breath. And as we talked, we talked about Jesus We talked about his grace we talked about how God meets us personally I read scripture shared the gospel we offered prayers and as I looked at this woman who was looking at me with her blue eyes across the covering of the mask on her face we we found great joy and great comfort in the fact that Jesus was with us in that place he was paying attention to that woman's affliction she wasn't suffering alone Jesus was with her and she knew the hope of the gospel that one day when that was, those labored breaths end, she would be in the presence of the living God, healed and whole. Jesus still meets us. He still pays attention to us. I did a funeral on Monday, and at the funeral I shared one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 56, the psalmist writes, You have kept to God, he's speaking to God, the psalmist says to God, God, you have kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? The, the New Living Translation puts it this way God, you keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one in your book. Isn't it awesome to know that every tear you have ever shed has been recorded in the book of God? He's paid attention to every tear tear of joy, tear of sorrow, tear of loneliness, every tear that has ever rolled down your cheek since the day you breathed your first breath, God has paid attention. He's been with you in it, it's not escaped him. He knows. Isn't that incredible! jesus personally meets people in their pain and he provides healing and deliverance secondly we see as jesus encounters the marginalized he he personally engages he doesn't just observe doesn't just pay attention he engages with what's going on let's go back to the gentile woman the syrophoenician woman she's coming into jesus she's fallen down before him And she's begging him for mercy. And Jesus says this thing to her that's a little bit confusing to us. He says in verse 27, Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answers him. She says, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So Jesus is testing this woman. And the initial response of Christ, if he didn't know better, it would feel quite stirring. Like, what? What? It seems offensive. Like, why did he say that to that lady? Didn't he just call her a dog? He's speaking in metaphor. He, he's talking about bread, children, and dogs, but he really is talking about his message, uh, the, the, the Jewish people, and Gentiles. And, and he says, the, the, the children must be fed first, for it's not right for the children's bread to be thrown to the dog. And so this, this word for dog, it just simply means puppy. And Pastor Jeremy reminded me of that this week. It simply means puppy. This is like a pet that will kind of sit down and from the table. And if, they're, if you're the kind of house that lets a dog kind of come under the table and they wait for something to fall, the puppy could lick up the crumbs that fall off the table. But they're like second class. They, they, they're, they, you feed the children. You take care of the, the people first. And Jesus is kind of sharing this story with her. But in so doing, he's, he's testing her. Jesus isn't dismissing her with an offensive, racially charged quip. He's testing this Gentile woman. Matthew's account of the scene gives us a little bit more insight because Matthew tells us that the disciples even beg Jesus, send her away. But he doesn't send her away. He's engaging in a conversation with her. Jesus didn't just send her away, he he, he engages with her. And when he calls her a, a dog or a puppy, she doesn't get Offended, which is incredible to me. It's like she's like, Yeah, I get I'm a dog, but guess what? In your kingdom, even the dogs have bread unending. I, I don't deserve a seat at the table. I'm a sinner. I, I get it, Jesus, but I know that your kingdom is an incredible kingdom, and I know that your eternal bread never ends, and so I'll gladly be a dog. Just let me have some of those crumbs. And to me, it's amazing that if you look at this scene, she she calls Jesus Lord. She's the only person in Mark's gospel to call Jesus Lord, which is incredible. a a Gentile woman who didn't have a Jewish understanding. Secondly, it's flanked in chapter 6 and chapter 8. Chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. Chapter 8, we have the feeding of the 4,000. And here we have this other picture of kind of the eternal bread of Jesus. The disciples never figured it out. Like, what are we going to do, God? All these people are hungry. And so he says, oh my gosh, five loaves, two fish, just feed them. And there's 12 basketfuls. In chapter 8, same exact scenario. There's a bunch of hungry people. The disciples who should get it don't get it. And with just a couple fish and a couple loaves, they feed 4,000. With seven basketfuls left over, the the table of Jesus is bountiful. The bread never stops being multiplied. And somehow this Gentile woman is able to come to Jesus. They're having another discussion about a table. And she says, your bread never ends. The crumb from your table is more than enough. And with humility and persistence, God, I beg you, can I have a crumb? It's It's an amazing encounter to me. Again, Kathy's observations are on point. Kathy wrote this week, this woman understood that she was undeserving. She understood her position, that she had no right to, to, be a, to have a seat at the table, and yet she approaches Jesus anyways, and she begs for mercy. The only, appropriate, the only appropriate approach to God is to approach him with humility and begging for mercy. Repentance, confession, and believing in his mercy and grace. And so as we see this woman, this Gentile woman, even this Gentile man approaching Jesus, we're reminded of what Paul says in, in, in Galatians 3 when he says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is male, no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The table of Jesus is open to all. So that's the Gentile woman. What about the man? What about the deaf man? How is it that he personally engages, or Jesus personally engages with him? It's, it's rather peculiar, isn't it, the interaction that Jesus has with this guy. He takes him aside, in verse 33, privately, and then he puts his fingers in the dude's ears. Then he spits and touches the dude's tongue. He looks up to heaven, Jesus sighs, and he says, Ephetha, be open. And so Jesus didn't have to do any of that, Right? Because with the Syrophoenician woman, she, she just went home and found her daughter healed. Jesus never talked to the daughter, never entered the home of the daughter. He could have just snapped his fingers and this dude could have been healed of his deafness and his speech impediment. But, but this, this man needed a different sort of encounter, didn't he? To grow up in that civilization, being deaf and mute, you would have been an outsider, an outcast, lonely and cast out from civilization by most. A very lonely place to be. So Jesus must have recognized this man, this man needed a different kind of encounter, so he pulls him aside. He, he touches his ears, he touches his tongue, he heals his ears and he heals his tongue. It's incredible. He sighs, He looks up to heaven. as I look at this interaction with Jesus, it just speaks to the heart of Christ for the afflicted. He, he takes him aside. He, he doesn't want this dude to be a spectacle. He doesn't want This guy probably been a spectacle his whole life. He's been the, he's been the mutant, the, the dumb and deaf guy in his little village his whole entire life. Jesus doesn't want this guy to be a spectacle one more minute. So he pulls him aside privately to have this encounter with him. And then he he touches the guy. He puts his fingers in his ears. It's amazing to me. He touches the guy because he knows this guy needs to feel the loving, compassionate touch of Jesus. And then he looks to heaven. He looks up to heaven. It's this physical indication of the continual kind of prayerful communion that Jesus and the Father had. And we see this being modeled in Mark's gospel as Jesus would, re- would retreat to quiet places where he would pray and connect his heart to the Father. As we see Jesus healing this man and looking to heaven, we see this this connection between the outflow of healing and the power of the Father. Jesus and the Father are one, and Jesus was in constant prayerful communication with the Father. It's modeled throughout Mark's gospel, interestingly enough, the only time we see a breaking of the, con- the continued commun- communion between the Father and the Son is on the cross. It's the only time in all of history, in all of eternity, where that is broken. You remember on the cross, when the sixth hour had come in Mark 15? And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus, while he was hanging on the cross, he cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, let Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus became the sin-bearer for our sin on the cross, that was the only time in all of eternity in which the communion and the dependence between the Father and the Son was broken. But here in this moment, with this man who needs healing so desperately, Jesus looks to heaven. He looks to the Father as if to say, Father, let's do this. Let's bring healing into this man's life. And then he sighs. The sigh of Jesus. He's God, right? He's God. Infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He, I mean, he's God, right? And yet, as he's standing in the presence of this man that has dealt with this affliction his whole life, he sighs. And, I, and yet, though the text doesn't tell us what's behind the sigh, I just see the humanity of Jesus behind this sigh. Perhaps as Jesus is sighing, he's looking back throughout all of salvation history and he's looking back at the garden when God spoke a curse over Adam and Eve. And he's looking at all of the the death and the disease and the destruction and the pain and the horror that sin has, has wreaked havoc on human beings throughout all of human history. And perhaps just in just an exasperated, broken heart sort of way, he's sighing at the effects of sin that this man is now standing in in his presence. Perhaps as he's just looking at this man's life just in a very personal level, there's a compassionate sigh that comes out of Jesus as he thinks about all that this man has had to endure in his life. I think about when people were gathered around the, the graveside of Lazarus and they were weeping and Jesus saw all these people mourning their friend and Martha and Mary mourning their brother and John, Jesus is quoted in John 11 as being deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled and it says that Jesus wept and so he's moved with compassion and he sighs over this person, this man as a reflection of his compassionate heart. In other words, Jesus cares. How is it that Jesus might be personally engaging with you and me? I was blessed this week to, to, to baptize a new friend. And as pastors, one of the coolest things we get to do is baptize people. And as we're getting ready to go down into the waters of baptism, we, we had a conversation about why, why, do we, why do we be obedient in believer's baptism. And there's this, this reality that, well, I'm being obedient because Jesus asked me to. It's, It's something he commanded. But why would someone be baptized? Well, because they've had a personal encounter with Jesus. Jesus has met them in their life. And he's opened their eyes to the truth, and they've confessed him as Lord, and they've gone from death to life. And, and when we go in the waters of baptism, it's like that old self, it's dying, it's like our sins are in the tomb. And when we come up out of the waters of baptism, as the water is washing over us, it's like the blood of Jesus washing us. We're born again into the family of God, redeemed and whole and new, and that's because there's a, a personal encounter that we've had with the living God. That's what baptism is. And I'm reminded that no one is out of the, outside of the reach of Jesus. Just like Jesus opened the physical ears and loosened the physical tongue of that man on that day, he opens up our ears to hear the gospel. He he loosens our tongue to proclaim Christ as Lord. You and me are not nameless, faceless people. Jesus pays attention to every detail of our life. He pulls us aside. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you haven't. But God has a way, and sometimes we're in a room full of people, God has a way of just tapping on our heart and just pulling us aside, of getting our attention. And it's as if he grabs our face and he pulls into to himself, and he's like, I need to have a conversation with you about this. And God, everything just sort of disappears. The silence disappears, the noise disappears as God wants to have a conversation with us as he encounters us personally. And he reaches into our life by his spirit, and he touches our hardened hearts, and he makes them soft, and he enters into our pain. And he enters into our situation, and he offers healing, and he offers hope, and he offers deliverance. And he meets us where we are because Jesus personally meets people in their pain, and he provides deliverance. Lastly, as Jesus encounters the marginalized, he provides deliverance. He really does. With a a Gentile woman, he told the woman, the demon has left your daughter. And she runs home, and she finds her child lying in bed, and the demon is gone. She somehow knew to go to Jesus. She somehow knew and believed that he had the power to do this thing that she so desperately needed done on behalf of her daughter. And I just imagine the relief of this woman as she runs home and comes busting through the door and runs into her daughter's bedroom after after weeks, months, years of seeing her daughter being tormented by this demon, ravaged by this demon as she wailed and begged and and beat her chest for for deliverance to come to her daughter And and it never came. But on this day, after this encounter, this personal encounter with Jesus, she runs home and she sees her daughter laying on her bed, in her right mind, no longer tormented, no longer suffering, no longer in pain, delivered and healed. What a hopeful moment for this, for this mother. And then there's this man, this deaf man. Jesus looks to heaven and he sighs, and he says, which is be open. And the man's ears are open, and his tongue were released, and he spoke plainly. I find it interesting that Jesus pulls the guy aside, so it's just Jesus and the guy, the guy can't hear, and yet Jesus chooses to speak. That guy couldn't hear what he was saying. But then I was thinking about it this week. I thought, well, maybe the very first words this man ever heard in his entire life were the words of Jesus saying, be open. Maybe that, maybe for the first time in his life, sound penetrated his ears. The supernatural healing took place. And he heard the words of the living God saying, be open. What an incredible first word to hear. And in a moment, not only were that man's ears open... But so too were his heart and his mind to the truth of who God is in his son Jesus. Jesus provides deliverance in our lives too. I'm sure if you've been in the church for any length of time, you've heard stories, testimony of the way Jesus does this. I could, we could share thousands of stories about how God provides deliverance. I think in my own family, the addicts that have found sobriety through the power of the gospel, it's incredible. I have a friend named Jared who's a professional fighter and uh, he's a mixed martial artist and he used to go to my church in Milwaukee and Jared was a heroin addict for like 10 years and then he, he met Jesus and he was delivered of his addiction and now Jared is a he is a he's a spokesperson for for, for Christ and for recovery it's incredible he fights for the UFC and when he fights uh, he uh, he always says I want to win not so I can beat my chest and make it about me. I want to win because when I win in the UFC and Joe Rogan steps on the stage and he puts a microphone in my, in my mouth, I have a free platform to tell people that there's hope. And he shares these pictures on Facebook. I was sharing some of the guys on Thursday. He shares pictures on Facebook of his life before deliverance and his life after deliverance. There's this picture where he's got his arm around some friends in a gym and he, he's got this smile on his face, but then the next picture he zooms up and you can see the track marks on his arm. And he's like, when this picture was to- taken, I had just shot up in the bathroom. And he tells his story of addiction and lostness. But then he talks about having a personal encounter with Jesus. And he talks about the deliverance that he has in Christ. And he invites people to reach out to him. He's a spokesperson for a rehab facility. It's just like, there's a million stories like that, right? I, just, I hear Jared's story and I'm like, yes, God still does that. He still, he still, he still invades our life. He still, he still brings healing and deliverance and hope. He still does this. He does it every day. And, 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 and God just... Soften my heart to believe that's true. As I'm looking at my nephew, my, my great nephew on the front row of the, of the funeral, I'm just thinking, what hope does this kid have? Everything in the world is stacked against him. It's just, it, I, I, in my humanness, I just can't see a way out for this kid. It's like, man, when your grandfather and your father both die of overdose, what, what hope do you have? And then I read this, and I'm like, we have all the hope in the world, because Jesus, Jesus still meets people personally in their pain, and in their affliction, and in their sin, and in their lostness. He still does that. He still engages with us by the power of His Spirit. He still opens blinded eyes and loosens deafened ears and and softens hardened hearts. He still does that. And He still brings healing and deliverance and new life. He does that. God, may we walk in faith. And and for those of us that are in the church, those those of us that are Christians, that want to be the hands and feet of Jesus, lay this over the top of your life. When you think about how you engage the world around you, are you someone who pays attention to those in your midst? I mean, really, pays attention to what's going on in their lives? Or are you someone who, who personally engages with the people in your midst who maybe don't know Jesus, or maybe they're lost in their sin, or maybe they're really messy? And do you allow the power of God to work in and through you as an ambassador of Jesus that He might work through you to provide deliverance and healing and hope to the people in your world? What a blueprint for us as the church. And then I look at how the text ends. The last few verses, 36 and 37. Jesus charges them to tell no one. But the more he charges them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They call this the messianic secret. Why was Jesus always so concerned about people being silent about the work he was doing? There's a couple of reasons. Number one, if you were lived in the first century and you made claims of Messiahship, if you made claims to be the Messiah, your life expectancy was like two weeks because the Romans would have nothing of it. They didn't want, to, they didn't want insurrection. They were going to put it down with a fierce hammer. So were the religious authorities. And so Jesus, on one hand, is like, I'm not ready to hang on the cross just yet, so just shh. But on the other hand... He also didn't want this false concept of who he was as a miracle worker. He was more than a miracle worker. And if people just thought of him as a miracle worker, that that message would spread, and it might also set off like a messianic insurrection. And it might prevent Jesus from accomplishing his God-appointed mission. He wasn't a sideshow, he wasn't just a miracle man, he wasn't just a healer of physical ailments, though he could do those things. The healings of Jesus pointed to something much more significant. Jesus is not a balm that we apply topically to our pain. It's not a topical treatment that we use to alleviate our pain and then put back on the shelf for later use so that we can go on with our lives as is. Oh, things aren't well. Let me take a little Jesus off the shelf, fix that. Okay, back on the shelf. Time to live my life the way I want to live it. That's not who he is. Again, the third time I'm quoting Kathy today. Kathy's last observation this week, which I thought was on point, she said, we come empty-handed. Not worthy even of the crumbs. And instead, we receive redemption and acceptance into his family and a place at the table. That's incredible. See, these physical deliverances and these healings of Jesus that we see in this passage and in other passages, it's so much bigger than than just the healing. Jesus didn't come just to heal physical ailments, he came to overcome sin and death. Jesus came to heal the sin or the disease of sin. He came to to mend the broken relationship between God and man. And as we gather in this place today, he sees you. Just like I I looked down and I saw my nephew on the front row of that funeral a couple of weeks ago, and I saw not the wholeness of his pain, but I just saw the reality of his situation. God looks at us. And with a thousand percent more accuracy and clarity, he he sees all of you. He sees the part of you that you know about yourself and the part of you you don't know about yourself. He sees you in your totality, your thoughts, your ambitions, your inner world, your hopes, your dreams, your fears. He sees all of it. You can hide nothing from him. There's no such thing as being too far lost from him. You can go nowhere and be outside of his reach or outside of his sight. There's no outrunning him. There's no darkness that's too dark. And he not only sees us where we are, he personally meets us in those places as well. Whether you're in doubt or caught up in habitual sin or in pain or in a season of rebellion or struggling with loneliness or addiction, he sees you and he invites us to his table where there's healing and deliverance and restoration and recovery and salvation. And as these people looked at these two healings, they were astonished beyond measure. He's done all things well, they say. He's even made the deaf hear and the mute to speak. Certainly when Mark wrote this, he had in mind Isaiah 35. This this messianic prophecy in Isaiah 35 that was written hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah writes of the future messianic kingdom that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And that's exactly what was happening in our text. And that's what happens today. Jesus still encounters the marginalized. He still pays attention. He still personally engages. He still provides deliverance. To this day, right now, in this place, Jesus still opens blinded eyes. He still unstops deafened ears. He still heals the afflicted. He still gives hope of song to the redeemed. He still brings life to the desert places. Jesus personally meets people in their pain, and he provides healing and deliverance. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this text. And God, I confess that there are days in my life when I'm in the midst of some of the most difficult and painful human circumstances that my doubt gets in the way. God, I I confess to you that there are days I hold back boldness because I'm afraid that if I say or believe or proclaim the truth of who you are that that it might not come to pass and I'll have to reconcile in my heart what happened and, and so God I confess to you a struggle in this area I do God I ask that by your spirit God you would be God softening my heart softening our hearts God that we as a people would would experience what it means that you, you see us and you engage with us and you do miraculous things in and through us and for us, and God, I pray that we would be a people, that we would be a church, God, who would, would, with your very eyes, God, that we would lift our eyes up, and we would look out to the world around us, God, and we would pay attention to those in our midst, God, who are, who are desperate for you, God, I pray that, that as a church, God, you would, you would embolden us to, to not just pay attention and see those in our midst, but God, to step into their world, and to, to have a personal encounter with them in the name of Jesus, God, with humility in our lives, God, I pray that you would work in and through this church, in and through us as ambassadors of Christ, God, To that you would work through us to bring that sort of miraculous healing and deliverance that only you can bring. And so, God, take away our doubt and our fear and our hesitation, and God, work in and through us to accomplish your will and your purpose in the lives of many. And God, I'm mindful today of those in our midst who are Maybe they are more like the Syrophoenician woman when she first walked into that room, or maybe they're like that deaf and mute when he first encountered Jesus broken and hurt and afraid and trembling and unsure. God, I pray that you would remind them, that you would reveal to them in this place and in this moment, God, that you see them, that they're not alone, that, God, you draw near to them, that you enter into their life, you enter into their pain, you engage with situation. And God, I ask in Jesus' name that you would bring healing and you would bring deliverance. God, that there would be confession and repentance. People's hearts would be soft and they would turn their face to you and they would go from death into life. God, we love you. We trust you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood
2: is the God that we serve, you guys, one that desires to meet us in a very unique and very specific way for each one of us. All of our stories are different, and what I love most about this one is that Jesus desires to meet this man and this woman in two very unique and very different ways. So this morning, wherever you find yourself, I would ask you this— if you have not had a personal encounter with Jesus, man, maybe you're like this man who's been brought to the feet of Jesus and needs healing, needs comfort. I just encourage you. Will you just be broken before him? Will you listen? And will you allow him to touch you? For those of us that know the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we serve a great, great God. Maybe you need to be like the woman this morning and just come boldly and persistently asking for strength and help and guidance. He's a good God. Amen. I'm going to read one more time Isaiah 35, five through six. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. God, we thank you for this story in your word. It gives us such an insight into the caring and loving and very relational God that you are. Through the sending of your Son, we get to see Jesus encounter these people in such intimate ways and so unique to each one of their circumstances, and yet you meet them very, very similarly. God, would you do a work in our hearts today? God, would you meet us in those places of despair, in places of pain? God, would you provide deliverance? God, work in our lives. Work in our church. Work in our Rogue Valley. God, work in your world. God, we cannot wait to be a part of your eternal kingdom. Until then, God, meet us today. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You guys have a great week. May the Lord bless you.
0: We'll flower and moon you're the sun that's shining, you restore my soul, the deeper you call us, oh the deeper we'll go, we will sing a new song, The soil